Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Good morning, Rupak. How are you? Good morning, Dudley. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Very good. Let me just welcome the, uh, the audience. Thank you very much, everyone, uh, for joining us today. Uh, we've got a fantastic guest. We've decided to spice things up a bit, but 100 Days and Beyond is a, is a podcast that we've dedicated to the M&A world, I would say, the, the post-merger, uh, post-acquisition integration specialists, or even those that take part in it, observe it, take, have experience in it, or even just have a view on it. Uh, we, we've got uh, multiple people of, of different uh, backgrounds and, and experience that have been on the show already, and the show has been absolutely magnificent in terms of the broad, uh, the broad scope, the depth, the breadth of knowledge and experience we've had so far. But today, we've got somebody different. We've got somebody special, and I think uh, Rupak is going to be uh, a really great addition to our, our podcast series. And I'm just going to quickly go through some of your key points on your LinkedIn profile, Rupak, before, before I get into uh, into the rest of it. But um, on the on your profile, I mean, you talk about uh, building Lego, uh, which we're going to talk about, or L-E-G-O, which you're going to talk about, early warning systems in London. So enterprise software scale-up CEO focused on biz development, marketing, and product development. You, you would have seen a number of M&As. You would have seen a number of things. Thought leader on fintech, regularly appeared in leading publications, won awards for top trading and tech executive, led industry consortium projects with senior management of banks. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite good. I mean, if you look at the generating 250% shareholder return. Eight I'm blushing eight. there, Dougley. Stop, stop. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, if you just look at this, at, yeah. at, at this, this the wealth of experience, and I'm, I mean, wow. Thank you for joining us today, and um, tell us, just talk to us a little bit. Give us your journey. Give us your world, and and, and sure. where you are right now, and what you what you're doing. Sure. Um, I, I think as you highlighted to your viewers, you know, my background in M and A is slightly different. It's much more from the. Uh, I would say the cooking the dishes rather than serving them, you know, less so on the integration side, but more on, you know, what does make, what makes good M&A, what makes bad M&A, trying to drive M&A uh, from a sort of pre, pre-integration process. Uh, so I, I was an equity research analyst for my sins to, for 12, 12, 13 years, looked at a lot of M&A from the perspective of shareholder value, uh, seen some good deals and seen some bad deals. And, you know, often the, uh, at least, at least in the public markets, you know, uh, that there's a natural reaction to M&A, but often further down the track, it can be very different. I still remember when BlackRock bought BGI, the big index business from Barclays, and everyone thought it was a bad deal. And it was one of the best deals in financial services history. So, you know, I think M&A is a, it's, it's, it's a test match. It's not a one day or a, or a 2020. Uh, so that was my first, uh, I guess, innings. Uh, the second job I had uh, was at a company called ICAP Next, around $2 billion of revenue. Uh, work, working with the board closely and the founder and, and the management team there, uh, really, uh, you know, in-house driving corporate strategy, uh, worked on a lot of deals. You know, that was a business that grew because of acquisition, uh, you know, had a lot of organic growth, but a lot of the businesses were acquired. And 
uh, and, and the nature in terms of how we integrated them or, or didn't integrate them, I think is fascinating. And you know, how do you keep founder CEOs on the management team? Um, you know, do you go hard in terms of integrating everything or do you give people uh, autonomy? Um, so I learned a lot there uh, from the board uh, in terms of that. Uh, uh, and then, you know, we did a lot of, uh, of transactions where we were largely selling businesses. We bought some small bolt-on uh, acquisitions and I've got some insights from those. But, you know, most of the M&A we did was selling the business. And again, M&A is, uh, you know, it's a super tanker. You know, you, you, know, you can't just turn, wake up one day and go, you've got to sell the business. <laughs> because business is declining or so forth. You have to plan several years ahead. And that's why I go back to the, uh, you know, the analogy of the kitchen and, 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 and making sure you're, you know, that you're cooking properly. Uh, you know, you, you really have to think several years ahead because, uh, you know, M&A takes several years of negotiation. And often when you see a deal, it's like, oh, that's obvious. But actually, you know, some of those transactions, we negotiated them over many, many years, particularly where there aren't multiple buyers. You know, when you've got multiple financial buyers and it's a really really hot segment that's kind of different and m a can move very quickly but when you've got a, a niche you're in and you're a, a you know your buyer is a natural strategic and there aren't that many of them those negotiations can take years sometimes and it's you know uh, someone on our board once said to me at my previous employer deals get done between people and you know making sure that those you know, the, the, the planets align in the in the correct way i think is really important so that was my second experience uh led some industry consortium um working for some industry bodies after that. And now I'm in scale up land. I work at a company called Galatix. We are 130 employees, four or five different locations globally, selling enterprise software SaaS uh, to systemically important banks and insurance companies. Very, very different. But again, you learn a lot about uh, founders and, and, and sales cycles and so forth. And, you know, technology has a people aspect to it. I, mean, I think everyone is in this SaaS world where we always assume that you know, you just integrate platforms and so forth, but the, the sales, the business development, the creativity, actually, you know, M&A integration, there are lessons from other industries. And we were talking about advertising, I remember yesterday, and there are lessons from those industries as well for SaaS businesses. It's not just SaaS has technology and doesn't have a face to it. So M&A integration is completely different. Um, so that's really my background. So that, um, that's fascinating. So, uh, I think having being on the sales side and 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 being a guy that's that's got marketing, you've got the I would say a broad base um, exit valuations. I mean, we, we one of the key things that sort of stood out for me was the assisted the integration of electronic assets into the largest group. Um, I want to I want to just touch on that. I mean, give us a definition of electronic assets. Yeah. as opposed to digital or other assets, um, if there's a difference. So, so in, in that example, we're not really differentiating. Obviously, when you think about digital assets, you think about blockchain, you think about crypto, whereas electronic is sort of web 1.0, web 2.0, uh, depending on your definition. Hmm. Um, but you know, the, really re the reason is that the company I worked with, ICAP, for seven years, we had a, a voice broken business, a traditional brokerage, which actually used a lot of technology. You know, there's a lot of hmm. technology platforms used by our brokers and so forth. Um, you know, there were some pure electronic platforms as well. And there was, you know, a large technology budget there, but it was essentially thousands of brokers picking up the phone and shouting prices down the phone to banks and asset managers and making markets. <laughs> and that was the business I grew up in in the late 90s. But in, 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 in ICAP, we still had a large business in that space. Um, but, you know, the, the most valuable business, at least in terms of shareholder value, in terms of what we when we sold the business was actually our electronic assets. They were exchange like assets where you didn't have a broker and we ran electronic trading platforms. So like an exchange group 
but it was an over-the-counter platform. So we used to trade trillions mm -hmm. of dollars of bonds and foreign, foreign exchange on our technology platforms. And banks uh, and asset managers were our clients. And you know, it, it could be a person on the other end who's tapping a price into that platform, or it could be an algorithm and a, and a quant-based. Uh, and obviously, there was a trend towards quant-based algorithmic trading. Uh, and then that we had a variety of other sort of what we call post-trade and optimization tools and businesses which use technology. Um, but but I guess you know why I differentiate between the two is those electronic and post-trade assets were you had people that were set, you know in sales and new business development and in finance and all those functions, mm -hmm. but you didn't have and you know the client-facing person was the sales guy who was selling the technology platform, selling the optimization or the post-trade tool like a, mm -hmm. a SaaS product. Um, you know, in a similar, and it's similar to what we're doing at the moment, but you know, slightly different ticket sizes and slightly different industry verticals. Or, and, and I was really differentiating between that and the brokerage business, which you know was was a more of a people business. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's fascinating, and and for me, and, and you mentioned about the people side, but I think what often what often happens with systems, you know, we talk about SaaS as as if it's as if it's a silver bullet or or technology as if it's a silver bullet but if you if you think back to the early days and even now no matter what piece of software you 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 buy you try to implement and 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 so on there's still a large amount of intellectual property that has to be incorporated into that asset if okay. you like or the I software to make it work yeah. to make it valuable to the company okay. i mean a piece of software is not valuable unless you've built your systems and processes and procedures and user uh, access permissions and and even your products your your customer lists i mean i'm going to go on but but i mean just give us a flavor of that yeah i mean people naturally think about people businesses and i, I you know i used to cover asset managers for example and follow that sector for 20 years and asset management is one of those sectors that has had a lot of MA. it makes natural sense for consolidation economies of scale you integrate your back office your it your salesforce um, and you get natural economies of scale and then there's also industry pressure from the point of view of passive investing and so forth but then you've seen a, a graveyard of bad asset management transactions where you know someone's bought an, an asset manager and actually the star fund manager has walked across the road you know uh, a very good friend of mine who's a hedge fund manager used to always say well, the assets have legs uh, and, and can walk out the door. These, you know, uh, in terms of how you value them, the natural thing as as we think about technology businesses, and think, well, the assets can't walk out the door. There's no star hedge fund manager there that or star producer that can walk out the door. Um, but, uh, but you know, but and and the brand does stay and the IP does stay. But there's a lot of things that are people intensive in a technology business that are really relevant. Um, and it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to just integrate a, a two platforms and it's a mature business? Or, or you're trying to really drive growth and innovation and new product development and so forth. Because if you're trying to do the former, then it may be fine. You know, the people aspect doesn't matter as much. But if you're trying to do the latter, which is drive innovation, and you're buying this business for the product development and the product, like, you know, the life cycle, uh, then I think people matters. And I think it matters in, in two areas. I think there's the firstly, people always assume technology is a black box, as you said. And as we move from Algos to AI, it's almost like, you know, Ter Terminator and Arnie and you assume that it's, you know, the AI takes care of everything. And, and it's not as simple as, you know, you've got the input and the output and the AI that sits, sits in between. And I, and I saw mm. something on social media that the other day. So, and I won't credit, credit myself for it, but it, it sort of went through the orchestration layer of AI. And we see that internally. You know, most of our headcount at Galatix, 130 employees, aren't actually AI guys and technologists. They're data engineers. The data engineering layer in software 
you know, in, in, in tech businesses, SaaS businesses is so important. You know, it, it's it's the labeling, it's the versioning, it's the the metadata, it's the lineage, it's all those things, hmm. uh, data governance around it. And then there's obviously the data science model on top. Uh, and there's multiple, multiple functions. You know, people always assume the AI is one black box, but there's multiple function, multiple functions. And understanding who does what, mm. going back to your M&A lens, and who do you need to keep post-acquisition, and who do you not need to keep, and what yeah. businesses scale naturally, and what businesses, you know, the acquired business has talent in data engineering or data lineage and data governance, so you want that, and that accelerates your growth. Uh, so there's, the, you know, we call that Galactics the data factory. Um, you know, that's a proprietary term we have. Uh, in terms of, you know, people always talk about, you know, picking up and dropping software and we're a SaaS business, but what we have is we also help you fine tune your algos. We help you with your data engineering. And mm -hmm. we find that that's the biggest pain point that our big banks and insurance clients have is actually, you know, you can, you can pick up and drop some software, but actually, you know, it's the spaghetti of the in-house systems. And, you know, how do you fine tune that algo? You know, you're mm -hmm. one bank versus another bank and your data is different. Uh, you know, your data engineering capabilities are different. Your silos are different. Uh, and, and, you know, understanding what you can pick up and drop and what you want to pick up and drop and then what on top you want, uh, which is what we call the data factory. So the end-to-end -end data lifecycle. And, and I think that's mm. really, really important in software businesses. And the other thing is, in particular earlier stage companies, and, you know, we're eight years, eight, eight years in, but, you know, we sell very, very sophisticated enterprise software to sophisticated banks and insurance clients. And it's really the founders, you know, whether it's your CEO, who's your chief commercial officer as well, and is your chief head of sales. And we always say internally, we have a discussion about, well, who's going on that sales pitch? And you know, our CEO is our best sales guy because he's built the product. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's not just a startup. <laughs> world. I think in a scale up land, you know, you need, you know, you know, at what point, you know, do you still need the founders? Uh, and that could be from a you know, sales engagement uh, or it could be from a product roadmap or from a, the secret source and the algos and the data engineering. Uh, and, I, and the reason I highlight data engineering is there's so much open source software out there, you know, AWS and all these big guys provide all sorts of algos out there. You know, everyone focuses on the AI layer, but it could be the data engineering, you know, layer. And actually our two founders at Galactics, one is the CEO and the chief product architect. And the other one is actually the chief data engineer, um, which, you know, naturally you think about it, it's the AI architect, but actually, mm. You know, we use all you know some proprietary algos, but it's also some you know open source stuff there. And that was that was also the history of the company I worked at previously, which was very different in scale. You know, two billion dollars of revenue, forty-five locations. Um, you know, we had more legal entities than hot dinners. Uh, you know, very you know, you know FTSE, FTSE one hundred business for for, for for a long period of time. But I you know we had a founder CEO who'd built it from you know essentially a shed. You know, it was one you know a desk and a couple of guys on the desk in the mid eighties. And sort of grown that over time and grown it very successfully organically in that broking business and then acquired where we needed to drive scale and you sort of integrated the back office and you added voice brokers and added brokers on top and producers and then we pivoted into technology businesses um and we we we, we sort of understood the culture of, of the federation you know do you integrate and it, it varies by acquisition do you integrate really hard and everything is rebranded everything is you know, it's cost, energy, and so forth, or do you keep a federation of companies? And I think it was the history of the voice broker where you, you know, you buy an asset and the, and the asset, a lot of the, the intellectual property, you know, it's, there's no patents, there's no, you know, there's no IP, it's the brokers, uh, the broking, the brokers relationships with asset managers, mm -hmm. hedge funds, traders at banks, and so forth, the producers. Uh, and that could be in financial markets, or it could be energy. So you're very cognizant of keeping those, because otherwise, what were you buying? 
So you would integrate the back office, mm. the IT functions, the finance and so forth. But you would often uh, keep, you know, give them autonomy. You know, you would, you know, you, you would, you know, you'd have a slightly separate brand. You'd have a, you know, a, you know, slightly different reporting structure. And that was also important when you engage with clients, because sometimes the client didn't want to give you too much business. They wanted to have multiple brands. Um, um, and that DNA really taught us from the, you know, of keeping this federation on the voice breaking when we acquired electronic and post-red assets, where we had an earlier stage company, where we had founders that we you wanted to keep engaged. You know, the worst thing is like, you know, you, you buy something and the, you know, the IP is the founders or the management team and the brand, and then you just rebrand it. <laughs> <laughs> and you completely integrate, and the founders, well, you know, they've got that cash. You, you, you know, they've negotiated a great upfront without an earnout, which is, you know, Carlson number one. Um, and I think it goes back to that sort of, and I always say that the federation versus the tight, you know, complete integration. And, and it, 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 there, there's no playbook. It, it depends on just the deal, really, to be honest. And also the dynamic of the people, uh, because because I mean we it's, people talk about culture, but I think it's not deep enough because there's also dynamic, there's um, interactions, there's relationships, there's uh, connections that have been created over over time. I mean we all know over over years of of working within an organization and and externally, you build up networks, you build up connections, you build up the the go to guy when. When something goes wrong, you you know th that kind of stuff you don't really buy that. I mean, it doesn't sit on a on an income statement or a, or a, uh, on a balance sheet or whatever. Uh, very difficult to 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 value that as well. Uh, when when I when when I look at that, I mean, when I listen to to you as well, I mean, there's there, there's a, a big emphasis on on sort of data management and so on. But when you're looking at sort of integrations and um, even these days, and, and with banks and, and so on, with all the, the the new regulations and things and, and the changes, they're often these days being forced separations, carve-outs. There's a, a whole host of changes, not just integrations. I mean, I know on the, on the sales side, when you're getting ready for sale, you're obviously trying to get the highest price. When you're on the buyer side, you're trying to pay the lowest price. Uh, and, and that's the dynamic that happens pre-deal and then post-deal. Everyone then is trying to find a way to work together to get joint highest value possible together, theoretically. Tell us a bit about your your view of the world on on that sort of theory versus the practical side. Yeah, and, and I think I, I think you know people spend so much time worrying about a basis point here or there, or hundred basis points I should on a transaction. I think that that I think you've, you you hit the nail on the head in terms of actually you know what do you need from the you know the the asset that you're acquiring you know if this is a pure platform business you're buying you you know this is a mature business you can sell it through your distribution network your brand is stronger than the asset you're acquiring uh, and it's pure ip you don't really need to worry about that but if you do need the founders or you need part of the senior management team or you need the brand you know creating that incentive structure around it uh, and that governance and it could be board seats you know how many board seats do you give to the other side um, and I always say that actually, you know, more than the terms, you know, if you, if you, you know, if, if you're acquiring an asset from a very, very savvy seller, then you want them in the tent, you want them in the tent, you want them in the tent, you want them on the board, you want them, mm -hmm. um, you know, to have some incentive to be around. Um, and that's at, across multiple and it, it, it scales, you know, and, and I think it, you know, it, that can be tens of millions of dollars of revenue of business, or it can be hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars. And how long do you need them? And in what capacity do you need them? Mm. 
Um, um, and, I, and, I, and I think the incentive structure around that is really, really important because, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're letting them cash out or, you know, at least public transaction, you know, you could say, oh, it was an old stock deal. But, you know, if it's a, if it's a large company and I've looked at m and for 20 years on the equity research side and looked at these deals, you know, it's kind of like if it's a large transaction, it's liquid stock, then it doesn't really make, made a, make a difference if it's cash or stock. As long as the stock doesn't tank before the, before the, before the deal closes, you know, you, you, you know, the, you, you uh, the, the seller can get out basically. So it, it's really, you know, it, it, it's really about understanding incentives, motives, culture. And, and that was what I learned, I think, going from an, being external to internal. So I spent most of my career in external looking at M&A from the outside. You know, you're an equity research analyst, you're in, in the, the, on the buy side, you know, you're looking at deals and you're looking at deals and the stock pops, it's a good deal, it's a bad deal. And you're looking at the disclosure from the company around cost synergies are this and the, co- the bigger the cost synergy, the better. On the announcement day of, you know, what's the revenue synergy? Could it, you know, are they talking, talking their book? Is it conservative? Is it not? You know, ha- you do some channel checks around it. But I think mm. what, uh, and a CEO I, I, I once worked for, you always say this, well, people always forget the culture thing. You, you guys don't ever ask the culture thing around whether, and, and that's, you know, around M&A or it's around strategy generally. I think, you know, I think, on the, and it's a real contrasting public companies and private companies. Um you know, private companies and, you know, the, the VC world. And obviously, I mean, you know, we're an early stage company. It's all about the founders, hmm. um, you know, particularly in tech. Um, whereas in public companies, you know, people fo- focus on those financial metrics. Uh, and I, 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 you know, how often do you get culture in those decks? Um, and, and particularly I, what's the data market? I, I'm yet to see, I'm yet to see a, a culture line item. <laughs> I don't well, know if you've that, ever intangibly, yeah. and it could it could be people, but it could be also be brand, you know, brand equity. Mm. You know, are the two brands stronger together? Are they are they you know? Do you want to just replace that brand, or you know, what's the you know what's what's the go to market strategy? Um, well, I, what I'm also what I also uh, picked up is that that's certain in its culture, but it's also uh, what's built into the DNA. Sometimes organizations are let's 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 take tech-based entities often started uh, by a good tech guy that happens to also good be good at sales right so yeah. he or he managed to have a friend that was good at tech and and he was good yeah. at sales or she but yeah, know, yeah, going start, yeah starting that sort of sort of the dream business i mean yeah. we could probably go through a few examples of those yeah but um <clears throat> i think then, as the as the as the organization sort of grows and, and progresses, then then wh- whoever wins the 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 battle, because I think if it's a then becomes a heavily sales or marketing or or sales driven organization, it's all about product and volume and 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 and, and numbers, or it could be alternatively very much around the technology. It must be it must be solid, good. It must be whatever, because often. The sales guys go out and sell stuff and then hope the developers go and develop it. Or yeah. the developers say, You're you know, selling ahead. Yeah. Get this thing yeah. perfect. And then we, so there's a cultural thing, there's a dynamic between the different, different teams. If you look at educational organizations, you have mm. the curriculum developers versus the commercial um, side of, the, of an educational type business or training business. In, in, your, in your world, if I look at, uh, I mean, your financial markets standards board, that you were in the market structure and technology. I just, if, if I may, just sort of pull out something there, which I thought was very, very 
Uh, very interesting. So you looked extensively at the impact of machine learning, the AI, on financial market structure with industry participants, regu uh, regulators, uh, and and the Alan Turing Institute. Mm. Now, um, when you're looking at that sort of market AI tech, I mean, there's there's there, there's so many different things at play, and there's also constantly a shifting market as well i mean we there's nothing ever static so today yeah. you're making assumptions because you make hypotheses i'm guessing mm. you, you 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 think this is the way it should be you need to try and test that but then in three months there's been some kind of event yeah uh, i mean in london i mean we're experiencing incredibly high weather conditions i mean it's going to change the mood it's you know the high temperatures and so on yeah there's fires all over europe uh but Three months ago, we were talking, everybody was talking about Ukraine. And then the yeah. previous few months, we were talking about a pandemic. And I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And, and this whole dynamic shifts all the time. Yet Agreed. you've got to try and create a working model. T tell me a bit about, about that sort of, what goes on inside a guy like you? I mean, when you start playing around with these things in your well, it's always having a plan B. And I'm always surprised, you know, you negotiate as hard as you can. Or, you know, and that's the thing with, I think with, M&A, pre doing an M&A, you know, you, you negotiate as hard as you can, you, you know, you, you, you know, no, no, no one wants to look like the desperate, desperate guy or lady, you know, looking to sell. Yeah. And you want to do it from position of strength. Um, and there's a balance between, you know, uh, between that and, and, and post integration as well, having a, you know, having a plan B, you know, what could you do with that asset? Um, you know, if, if plan, plan A doesn't work, you know, technology changes something, you know, uh, changes inside the business um and you know it's being ready for the sort of unknown unknowns or the known unknowns and i think i wrote something about this for for the ft recently and it sort of talked about the story of uh, abraham wald abraham wald was this hungarian uh, uh, maths professor who worked in world war ii around planes and you know all the planes used to come back from world war ii and they would all and all these maths professors and algo you know and today it would be algos would look at all the you know where, where are the bullet holes on those planes uh, and that's where they would focus on their attention. And actually what Abraham Wald said is actually look, look at where the bullet holes aren't because those are the planes that are not coming back from World War II. Um, and, you know, look at, you know, and I think Donald Rumsfeld famously said, described, I think, during the Iraq war, sort of the, no, the, the sort of known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, I think, uh, from memory. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, you know, because M&A takes typically quite a long time. You know, if, you, if I think about deals I've been involved in, you know, you, you negotiate for many, many years. So actually from the beginning of when you're looking at it to when the acquisition, you announce the acquisition, it could be multiple years if it's a public deal. You know, people don't see that. It's like the iceberg. Mm. You know, people don't see that apart from the M&A bankers and the lawyers behind the scenes. The public market doesn't see that. But it could be years of negotiation and, you know, toing and froing between CEOs and so forth. Mm. And then once you announce, you know, you're typically going to have antitrust if it's a large deal. And that could take you a year. Could take you longer, um, and if it's a people business, there's the you know, the integration take you know it, it, you know it it takes time to bed things down, rebrand, go to market, and stuff like that. So what's your plan B if one of the founders leaves, or you decide you want to shoot one of the founders? <laughs> because, <laughs> yes. cool. and 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 they, you know typically you'd want to give them an earn out, and you know I I, I used to discuss in the old days that people used to always say like oh well that's too much money, and I. I always thought actually earnouts should be as generous as possible and the upfront is as, as little as possible. And actually, you, you know, you want to, you know, you, you want to minimize your downside and, and, and actually share as much of the upside. Um, and, and you want to structure it in a way that it's not like binary. I think people always look at things binary where, you know, 
and obviously if you're a founder no you know no one wants a, a long dated options trade to use my financials uh, uh sort of background in terms of no one wants a, an earn out 10 years from now on a, on you going from 20 million of revenue to 2 billion and if, it, if you don't get there you don't get paid out you know you want you know you want baby steps along the journey so you want to minimize the upfront but you want to have an earn out structure where it's baby steps uh, along the journey where it's not all one big uh you know financial you know five-year clip fest um and i'm yeah, it's, it's a hockey stick isn't it it's like uh, it's you know we we flatlined or yeah we had some trouble over the last few years but all of a sudden you know nick from next year everything's just going to go you know go up <laughs> and always you know, there's always been a discount you know and you never take a founder or a ceo's you know projections and say well your earn out is based on on all of that you know you make mm -hmm. it reasonable and you think well how much are you in the money you know you paid 100 million dollars for this asset you know, you want to minimize as much of the upfront as possible. And then in the earn out, you actually want to juice it and you want to have as much earn out early in, in the early years. You know, yeah. how long do you need the founders uh, and the senior management team? And who do you need on the senior management team? Uh, and what do you need for them from? Um, so you want to, you know, you want to have as much juice in the earn out in the early years, I think. Because because I've seen these structures where you have the upfront and I have these negotiations. Oh, well, they don't want the earn out. Yeah, because it's like, it's like somewhere out on the curve and it's like, and, you know, the, we've all worked at banks where, you know, your, your share options are worthless, you know, because 10 years later, and it's not your <laughs> fault. It's someone else's fault, mm. uh, you know, yeah, because uh, you lose control. It's not yeah, you're you no longer control. in control. And founders love control, as you know. Um, <laughs> you know it, so it, I, I'm still amazed by how, how the structure between the upfront and the earnout, particularly the curve and the J curve of mm. sort of, you want to minimize your upfront because let's say this thing, not, you know, because you always see revenue growth into a sale, you know, because the founders, they're insiders, you know, just like, and, and it could be a founder or it could be a public company. You know, mm. do you want to be on the other side of, you know, of those people? Um, you know, so you, you know, you want to minimize your upfront, but you, you obviously, there's always going to be an upfront, but on the earn out, what can you give them in year one or year two? And, and you know, it's easy hanging fruit. You know, you hang around, you do the chairman thing, you do the, statesman thing you help us with the brand you help us get revenues from here to there or clients from here to there uh and then you get this much um and we and at that point also you know you've not given given all that cash out so you know you've you know you you, you get, get you know you look under the hood you check the i you know the ip and the data engineering and so forth and then you get that and then uh you get stages and then, and then you can have you know you can mm. renegotiate on the way or later on in the you know yeah, I, I, was, I was just going to ask, um, uh, your, your, you may have seen some of these things before, but um, pre-deal, and as you said, it does take time to build up a decent deal. Then there's the announcement of what it is that we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and this is just a perception. I mean, you must tell me if, 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 yeah. if, if it's validated or not, but um, I very seldom get the announcement that there's been a you know the the integration has been successful so there's no there's no big event that says hey everybody we've achieved what we announced we're going to do you know in 18 months ago or whatever it was have you ever been at one of those events in in, in public companies or private companies well just anywhere. I mean, yeah, in so, public so, 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 so I, I, you know, I, I, my, my, my background is much more in public companies until, you know, 12 months ago, so forth. Obviously, I've been involved in investing in private companies and so forth. And in public companies, 
no one ever says an integration goes wrong. I've never seen a finance director, a CEO, or a board say, well, we missed on integration targets. Uh, and a CFO I, I once spoke to about this on a deal or anything said, well, we, we hit the cost synergies targets. What are, you, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, show, you know, it, there's always a way to fudge the numbers. And, and, and finance directors, <laughs> you, know, and, you know, they may be former accountants usually, uh, albeit in the US, they're not. Uh, you know, that's one thing they're create. They're very creative at. You know, it, it, you know, you know, where where do the costs? And, and to be honest, once you if you have a hard integration as opposed to a federation of companies, it, it, you know, it, yes, you you know, you get some external agency to audit those cost synergies and so forth. But it's you know, how do you you know, you've had a hard integration, you know, and people have changed in those two three years because it's a three year mm. cost energy target. And typically, you you know, year one you spend and you know, there's a J curve on the cost energy line. Um, and the cost synergy, you can get an external agency, you know, to, to audit that or, you know, to, you know, to provide external validation to your board of that. But on the revenue synergies, I mean, boy, <laughs> you know, three years from now, uh, I, 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 you know, and, and, you know, how do you, you know, how do you quantify, you know, but particularly when it, if it's a platform synergy and you're doing, putting, you know, two platforms together and one platform has, you know, uh, distribution in one geography. And you can quantify how much revenue is going through that pipe. You know, that's a that, that's a pretty quantification. And I work with data mm. data engineers and data scientists every day. And you know, 130 employees. Uh, I'm one of the few people who can't code. And you know, and I get this every day when I talk about sales and marketing and going on Dudley's po podcast, perhaps. And and they're like, oh well, quantify, <laughs> quantify it. And, and, you know, <laughs> most of the revenue synergy stuff is really hard to, mm. you know, it is, you know, and. You know, if, if it's if it's if it's down the pipe, you can quantify it. You know, you know, you've got the pipe has distribution in the US, you are in Europe or APAC, you know, the the acquirer, you know, then you can work it out. But, but you know, the what's cross sell, what's you know, it, it's 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 an art rather than a science. Um but there's complexity as well because that's assuming everything is linear. Um you know, you have one acquisition you got one integration and 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 the world stays the same you know if you're making that assumption but in essence many entities especially listed entities are serial acquirers so what they've done is they've in the meantime exactly while how, how do you in business school it's like two deals you do the shell analysis and then three years later you check you know, yes. when you, you know, you get the bean counter to do the analysis, blah, blah, blah. But actually, usually, as you said, most most companies, uh, and you were talking about the advertising agency, I know the other day, the market, you know, you think about that. And that was my first job was actually adver uh, looking at holding companies for ad agencies. And you look at the big holding companies and the amount of deals they did across mm. ad agencies and marketing. And, you know, how do you peel and that? There's always a track? shuffle. There's always a there's shuffle. Always, and there's a shuffle and so forth. And then the deal, you know, the deal synergy, it, it, you know, like most things in life, it doesn't exactly work out in that period. I mean, I think about, uh, you know, the, my previous employer, ICAP Next, and, you know, I worked there from 2012 to 2019. We did largely sales on the sell side rather than the buy side of transaction. Some of the most of, most of the earnings power and most of what I was able, we were able to sell in transactions was businesses we bought, you know, a decade before. But, you know, the J curve on those didn't kick in straight away. So did those acquisitions look great in year one? Some of them did. Some of them looked okay. Some of them looked, you know, there was one uh, I remember that were, we looked great in year one. It was uh, a Swedish uh, post-trade business and it looked great. But then, then in the middle, it didn't look as good. 
for a variety of market, nothing to do with the management team, but a variety of market structure, macro reasons. And then regulation came came about and it was like, boom, suddenly it was the, you know, it was a great franchise, great mm -hmm. mode, great technology in the right place. And suddenly four years down the track, boom, you got a J curve. Uh, and it was, it, it's not like it wasn't a great asset in the middle, but it was, it was just market structure and macro headwinds. And I'm amazed by, and I coming from the public markets by how people forget that there's the sort of, you know, between the management team. And I think, you know, we talked about culture and management team and the importance of that. And, and in where mm. I am, it's very, very important, not just in the sales, but also in the technology side, but in larger businesses, often market, at least in the near term, macro and market structure will drive it. I used to analyze bank stocks. And, you know, there isn't a lot of the M&A in banks, partly because of regulation, too big to fail and so forth. And, but, you know, most of what will happen in year one or year two of a, of a bank transaction is ma macro market structure. And, and, and it could be that, you know, the, 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 mm. the, you know, the management team of, of, of the bank you're acquiring was useless. You know, they, they had lots of subprime <laughs> loans that just bought them in 07 uh, and they were useless and you need to, you know, shoot them. Uh, uh, but you know, I, 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 but often there's stuff hidden in the balance sheet that won't appear for five years. And in the near term, you know, if interest rates go up, that's good for banks because banks make more money or GDP grows up. But that doesn't mean the, the acquirer's management, sorry, the, the management team of either the acquirer or the acquired bank is is doing a good job. So it's it's also knowing what metrics to look at. You know, hmm. is the banks earnings are going up because interest rates are going up or the or GDP is going up and the credit cycle hasn't turned. So, you know, whereas, you know, the, you know, they get their earn out and then, then a couple of years later, all the bad, bad loans are, you know, stuck in a, in a, in a, it's, it's the story of GE, which is, you know, for me, uh, you know, a great, the poster child of m and uh, I think, you know, I think I was reading a stat, I think that there's no, no company in history that spent more money on bankers and lawyers than GE. Um, I think they spent I can't remember the exact number of billions they spent. And some of those mistakes were made, made under Jack Welsh. You know, he was growing in a bull market. He grew GE cap. If you remember, GE was an industrials business. And then they diversified into financials and GE cap, which was basically leverage, leveraging balance sheet. Uh, and Imlet, you know, inherited that and he had to unwind GE cap. But GE cap looked like a rock star under Jack Welsh because it was there was no regulation and you know, credit was becoming looser, basically. And Imlet had to unwind it. Albeit Imlet, you know, was seven years into the job when the financial crisis happened or many years in. So he probably should have unwound it or we should have had a plan B. And, you know, there's many criticisms I have of him. But you know, that's an example of a company that was very focused on, you know, there was an acquisition beast and was or and, and it was very focused on um, um, and paid a lot of fees to the streets. As a result, people said good things to, about them. You know, you'll be surprised, you know, people... Until think, something goes wrong, if you, know, if you pay a lot of fees to the street, people say good things about you. Uh, and GE was a prime <laughs> example. You know, no, you know, all these books written about, you know, GE and corporate America was clapping it. You know, it was it was the Google of its age. It was the you know, no one was talking about Steve Jobs. It was like Jack Welsh and GE and you know his management style and all these things were, and it was very focused on financial targets out of acquisitions. You know, when I, you know, if you're buying a bank, what would I be interested in, in a digital transformation? You know, if you think about, you know, how many, you know, you know, we're, we're, you know how, how many, how many uh, clients how, uh, are using your online app? You know, what, what are the, what are the next generation revenues? What are the product hmm. innovations? I used to have this when I was in-house. You know, what are the KPIs you look at? You look at revenues, you look at market share, you look at profits, you look at cash flow, you look at all these metrics. But you also want to look at those 
other KPIs around, well, new product revenues, new customer segment revenues, new. Mm. And I think when you look at an M&A deal, you you know, your earn out shouldn't just be structured on financial metrics. It should be structured on those sort of metrics. Um, yeah, and I just, I just comes, to, it come, comes to mind the, um, the transformation when you talk about banks transforming. Um, I watched a, 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 a documentary the other day about Macy's. I think Macy's in America, mm. uh, in the U.S., where Macy's was, uh, I would say, the flagship uh, department department store where you could go and get pretty much all the different things and it's more like a shopping experience etc and then then they, they had obviously the decline and how they've now transformed that into a a hybrid shopping experience where you can do it online and you can do it yeah you yeah. can walk around and it sort of tracks you and there's a whole range of things that they've they've incorporated so their value now is in terms of the macy's has become a, a buying experience as opposed to a, a transactional business where you mm. go and buy stuff and even banks to a certain extent is also moving shifting with 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 the markets is how do you read that i mean if you had bought macy's 10 years ago you would have thought great great business five years ago maybe not so great maybe you wouldn't i think, I think, it. I think it's, it's, it's thinking out on the curve and Forget what your and that's why public markets are really bad at because public market shareholders, particularly, you know, what's happened quarterly earnings. Very short term. You know, earnings are your earnings are your friend. Uh, you know, it's all about earnings and momentum for that quarter, that year. Mm-hmm. Earnings are growing, the multiple expands, and you can sell the structural story on the cyclical. I used to always say when I was an analyst, you know, if the cyclical is going up, you can call it structural. You know, you can call it structural and so forth, and and and, and so forth, and uh, you know. It's, it's, some extent in the private markets, I, I see that as well because everyone's obsessed about revenue growth by itself as a metric. You know, the earlier stage companies, it's an obsession with revenue growth rather than earnings growth, you know, public. And, and you see it in, in the whole software space. But, you know, I think it's the quality of those earnings is really all that revenue. Is it sticky? Is it recurring? Um, you know, what's the threat on that? And then thinking further out on the curve. And at big organizations, you, you have that. And, you know, I, you know, coming from the equity research side, which is, you know, uh, you know, the advisor world is very fragmented. So in the advisor world, particularly at larger companies, you have equity research analysts that advise the buy side. You have PR agencies that advise corporates on PR strategy and marketing and, and CEOs and, and so forth and, and so forth. You have the management consultants that sit in, in, in the big strat houses that go in and advise on strategy. And then you have the M&A bankers on M&A. And increasingly, they're all blurring into one. Um, and you've got to realize, you know, and maybe you just need the M&A bankers for M&A because, you know, and good CEOs mm. and good management teams should know what acquisitions they do and why they're buying it. So maybe, you know, but but actually it all blurs into one. And even with, within organizations, I'm very, I'm always surprised by how bigger, particularly big organizations with, you know, they, they will have a chief strategy officer like I was, and they'll have a head of M&A or head of corporate development. And both of them may report to the CFO or one may report to the CEO and one may report to the CFO. Mm. And typically, the head of strategy probably doesn't come from my background of equity research. They're probably a McKinsey partner or a BCG partner, to be candid, or a Wyman partner. And the, and the head of M and A corporate development is the um, is the um, is an M and A MD from a bank or whatever. And that's fine if you know what you're using them for. But increasingly, the M and A, you know, the quality of the M and A is is, is going to be a function of yes, your your ability to negotiate. Um, and the terms and so forth. But it's it's thinking out on the curve because it's a super mm. tank. You know, uh, whether it's, you know, 
you know, and it's, 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 look, it's the same for organic growth. And I, I realized that when I went from the public side to the private side, uh, a bad research analyst takes uh, a, a few hours to write a research report and say, sell, sell Microsoft, sell, sell, you know, sell on uh, Palantir or sell on, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Snowflake or whatever that tech company is. And because of X, Y, Z, uh, you know, a, a, a mediocre one will spend a few hours doing their model and looking at the comparables and listening to all the, a good one will go down the supply chain. You know, they'll go to the customers, they'll go down the supply chain of, you know, who are these guys? They'll Because ignore what the management team says, because management teams within reason are going to tell you something that's positive. Yeah, and they're going to, and particularly with regulation now, they're very careful about what they can say and what they can't. So you mm. go down the supply chain, you do the analysis. And it probably takes you a couple of weeks to go down the supply chain, speak to the customers, speak to the competitors, particularly the private competitors that have nothing to lose. They'll tell you the, you know, where the bodies are buried. Um, <laughs> you know, speak to the formal management team, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, and so forth. But you know, and that, but you know, it's 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 it's. But when you when you, when you think about changing your organic strategy, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, it, it's a multi-year thing. It's a multi-year thinking, and it's the same with M and A. It's a multi-year process. You need to have an M and A playbook. You know, this is the areas that are going to grow. This is the areas that are going to go you know, weak. You know, it's the white space stuff that all the consulting firms do. And then, can we play? Because I've seen all this white space stuff, and I'm like, yeah, fine, but how do we play there? Oh yeah, you can play there if you pay fifty billion times earnings for this high growth business, <laughs> and your PE is really low, and their valuation is really high, and your shareholders will probably buy you on the way. But mm. so it's also can you play there either organically or acquisitively, uh, mm. and can you dip your way in by a joint bit? Because you know those deals, as you said, those good MA deals, often the CEO is known the other CEO or known the company. Because CEOs mm. often change if it's not a founder. But they know the company or a board member or they know the they know the space for a long, long period of time, even if it's a tangential space. The good CEOs are always thinking, you know, what's the you know, what's out there, what's you know, what's in a tangential space? And they're you know, they're sitting in their I don't know, CEO club, wherever it is, and, and they're thinking, <laughs> Oh, I'm this other CEO, that that business is interesting. Should I go into that industry? They have the same core economics as us because mm. they're a tech platform or they digitize thing, but they're in a different industry vertical. Can we go in there? When would we go in there? And you sort of learn slowly about that. Um, yeah, I love that. I mean, I just fascinating to to, to speak to and 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 Rebecca, I think I think I want to I want to. I mean, we're coming to to closer to the end, and I, I want I want to just make sure we cover a few of the items. I the last few items that I want to I want to cover before we get to the end of the hour. Um. The current position that that you that you hold. I mean, uh, you've come from a massive, uh, well, a large uh, a company that had thousands of employees, etc. Now you're working in a in a smaller entity. I just mm. want to get your you know your personal experience around what's it like in terms of making that personal transformation, personal transition between you know that where there's so many different locations, people, whatever. And then all of a sudden it's a smaller office there. There's probably more to do. There's more things happening. You probably have to keep your eye on a few more things. I'm just making assumptions, but tell us a bit about those sort of that, that transformational journey going yeah. from that sort of large to small. Yeah. And, 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 and they, I think, you know, there are challenges in both, you know, big companies have challenges, um, you know, complexity and, and, and sometimes politics and sometimes different you know, different different factors, and actually, the big company I work with was actually quite entrepreneurial because we had a founder CEO who was the largest shareholder. A, 
Uh, and B, we had a lot of mar market structure and macro headwinds. So we were, we were fighting fires a lot. You know, it wasn't a bull market for that business. I think when it's a bull market for a, for a larger business, it's, it, I think it's slightly different. Um, but I think, you know, it goes back to one word hustling. I remember we, and I, and I say this when I interview people, you know, you could be at a big brand name firm now. Could you transition to a smaller firm? Yes, of course. You know, you've got best practices from that big brand name firm. If it's a good brand name firm, um, you've, you know, you've, you've learned things there that, that will transfer. Um, you know, your Rolodex will hopefully transfer as well. But it, it goes back to hustling. You have to hustle in a different way, uh, i.e., you know, we, when you're at this big brand name firms, you know, doors are open. And I almost go back to my first job of an equity research analyst. You know, every, you know, you, you, your biggest asset managers return your phone call straight away. Uh, you know, if you are you know, in a big brand name, one of the top investment banks at what they do at, at that time, uh, and you've got a massive sales force. You know, my first job, I used to, I was an equity research analyst. I was something called institutional investor. I was highly rated in what I did. I had a, a franchise. I would go on the road, you, you know, you, you jump on the trading floor at 7 a.m. You you know you sh you shout some views down, uh, into a morning meeting, and you had 150 people selling that across the world, across all locations. <laughs> you had a trading desk that got behind you, hmm. uh, and put that by, uh, So it was you know whereas you know it, you know we are we're a smaller business, um, particularly where you know uh, and we've taken the view to build a product and build a technology first. And I think that's one of the reasons I joined Galactics, is build a product and build it because I see it all the time. In you know, smaller companies, it's very, very cool to just, you know, become a social media frenzy uh, and become a media and marketing frenzy. Uh, it, it's really, and, be, and, you know, particularly in enterprise software, I think enterprise mm. software is a long sales cycle business. It is a C-suite decision making. It's, it's a marriage. This is not about going on a date. You know, that client, it's, it's, it's a large deal and it's, 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 it's going to be in their risk engine. It's going to be systemic or it's going to be influential to that organization. So they need to get to know you over time. And I, I, I call our clients strategic partners. I don't call them clients because yeah, you know, it, is, it, is a, it is a major, it is a major. So, you know, you're, you know, focusing on the, on, on the product and the technology, I think is really, really important. Uh, and, and then wait and, and be very careful about how you market yourself and brand yourself. Uh, you know, we're very focused on, uh, you know, coming across as thought leaders and, you know, sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail, but, you know, and thought leaders on the tech tech side, but also thought leaders on the idea side, because I think, you know, bits and bytes, everyone is doing that thought leadership. The West Coast owns that bits and bytes stuff and they're spending billions and every VC backed, you know, enterprise software does that on the bits and bytes and our AI is this and AI does that. But it comes back to business user. At the end of the AI and algos and tech is going to be used by a business user. So what is the pain point suffered by them? And I know that sounds very corny and generic, but, you know, you'll be shocked by how people still forget that. And they still start with the business, then the bit, you know, the bits and bytes stuff. Um, and, and then how do you engage with them? And I think it goes back to, and I think Steve Jobs is, you know, was the best salesman in in in, in history, perhaps. Uh, and I always believe that marketing and sales in business really has to be owned, particularly out of smaller companies. But even you see the large companies, you know, from the Elons to the Jobs, of the, you know, there has to be some CEO and and, and senior management ownership, whether it's a CEO mm -hmm. or a strategic CEO like me or a CEO, you know, all, all the senior management team have to be out there um, building the brand yeah, together. Yeah, and you often see, and this is just, just digressing slightly, but you see uh, companies morph sometimes where you've got the owner-founder, they, they're driven, they, they've got all the sales marketing ideas, they manage to build good networks, they get the product to market, they've got good partners within the business developing products, uh, services, whatever. 
And then eventually they exit. And, and when you look again, there's somebody with an accounting or a, a, the CFO has become the CEO um, yeah. and has got very limited sort of, let's call it flair around the, you know, it's making well, sales. Thing is, is to hire, you know, the, the ex-accounting, you know, and I, 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 I think at a, at a really large company, if the CFO's job is, 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 is pure financial reporting and they're somewhere on the J curve, um uh where where it it, it can be you know that but it, i think the cfo has to think this think of themselves as a thought leader as well they have to think themselves as a strategic cfo that looks mm -hmm. at re doesn't just look at reporting going back but looks at the forward and looks at not just the forward but really really looks at you know scenario planning on the finances plan a plan b plan c return on capital by project um you know, I had a very good divisional CFO. I'm thinking back at my ICAT days. He used to think about this and he used to blow me away. And he's the CFO of a public company now, um, who's very, very good at that return on investment and really, you know, really stress testing the business uh, and where the spend goes and asking those questions. Um, but also, also, I think everyone's got to be out there in terms of and, and return on capital investment. I think, you know, there's marketing and then there's. I think the difference between, you know, people tend to think about technology as an island and, and, and sales as an island. And I, I actually think that, you know, yes, you can't be a technologist if you can't code or, you know, you can't be a data engineer if you don't have these skills and you can't be, you know, but you, I think that, I think, you know, then there is an overlap. Very much together in, in one, they've sort of, the, the DNA has, has, has joined in a way, if you, if you think about it. Um, I want to just quickly uh, get a text. If you look at the early warning system um, yeah. product, if you want to just share a little bit about that, about the company, um, you know, just tell us a bit more about where, where you are now, right now, and, and and what the company does, and and who who do you you know, who would you like to talk to if you if you were out there yeah. needing to speak to people? So we provide a sort of iOS, Windows type data operating system for, for, for data for, for banks and insurance companies. It's a connected data ecosystem. Uh, the differentiation is it's an end-to-end -end data pipeline. You know, some of the companies in our space, the Palantirs of the world will provide the analytics and some of the layers, but we provide an end-to-end -end data ecosystem all the way from data discovery. And, you know, uh, many, many, you know many, many people already discover a lot of this data, but it's manual and it's time intensive. But you know, with, with the internet and social media, there's so much data out there. But we, at scale, our algos and our web crawlers will go out and discover data. You know, you know, one of our clients, insurance client, we were talking to the other day, hundreds of data sources, thousands of time series, and we do it continuously. It's not in a batch process. So we follow all the way from data discovery to data ingestion, and it's all algorithmically done. You know, structured data, unstructured, all the way into data transformation and data cleaning, and and all the data governance things around tagging, lineage, and so forth, to analytics. And where the early warning signal mm -hmm. product comes into is really analytics flare. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine who runs a markets business in one of the banks last year when I joined, and I was talking about this, this vision I had. Uh, and I, we, you know, we published a report on it. I don't have it with me. I would always wave it otherwise. But we, uh, we produced a report on this with our strategic partners, PwC. Uh, we worked with you know dozens of banks and chief risk officers of banks on this. And, it, mm. and this friend of mine said, yeah, it's all good, but no one ever defaults. No one ever, everyone, you know, no one ever pays, everyone always pays back loans unless they're real crooks. Uh, and that was last year, obviously, because we had this 40 year credit cycle. Um, mm. But if I look at our banks and insurance clients, our product is more in demand than ever because risk is rising. You know, we're finally seeing a credit cycle. Banks really care about credit risk. Insurers care about risk. You know, you've got mm. underwriting risk from climate change to all the things you receive with inflation and all the other macro 
and micro uh, trends out there. But you know, the end-to-end -end data platform um, is a key differentiation of us. It's 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 fully automated, uh, but we do prov provide some human supervision of it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of SaaS businesses will just you know just pick up and drop technology and that's all good and we're happy to do that if a client says just pick up and drop your technology but what we find is our clients want us to work with them they want us to engineer the data with them because they'll want certain data sources that other banks don't want and they, mm. they, they don't want the data mutualized because you know you see it with big tech no one wants that uh and they'll want the algos fine-tuned uh, and you know and I, I, i've written about it in some of the op-eds i've written you know past performance is no indicator of future performance causation versus correlation you know if you just rely on 100% algos and there's no human intervention uh, to the fine tuning of the algos, the data engineering layer. So, you know, uh, and we have a scalable ontology framework, you know, that, that, that can be leveraged on top of that. So, you know, we, we, we're, um, you know, eight years old. Uh, the founders are very, very focused on building it. And the first five years of the journey was very much focused on uh, working with certain insurance companies on a project by project basis. But it's really exploded in the last two years. We were, I think, 10 employees. Uh, two years ago, and we're 130 now, four different locations. Um, but again, you know, it, it, it's it's really about strategic relationships. It's it's not about oh, clients, clients. And I was interviewing someone for a senior role the other day, and they were saying, "How many clients have you got?" And I was like, "Do you not care how big that client is?" Because <laughs> you know that is it, it's and we we call it you know it's, it's the expand expand and expand and scale land expand scale model. Um, and that relationship is is valuable on both sides because. You know, the land is important, but you know it's how you expand and scale within that. You know that large client, uh, add use case, add technology. I love what you said earlier. It's a strategic partnership with your client. It's you, you, and I, and I think it's so much more prevalent in today's world. Is no entity, no company can be a master of all elements required to have a successful business. And and strategic partnering with various really strong entities that add an, an extra value, an extra uh, element that just doesn't exist. You cannot just go and employ someone and say, you know, come and do some, <laughs> some data work for us. It <laughs> doesn't work like that. You need a specialist organization that's so, thought about it. large enterprise software, you know, clients. Um, and, and the bits and bytes are important. The algos are important, but it's kind of like, mm. how are you going to help us execute? Mm. Um, and also being a being a trusted partner for them, a thought leader for them, where you're not just like on the phone. Can I sell you something? Can I show you a demo? It's like yeah. you know, and that, that was what the early warning system paper was about. You know, we went out and spoke to 10, 15 of our largest uh, relationships, many of them clients, uh, big banks, and work with our strategic partners, PwC. We have a global relationship there to get yeah. some thought leadership out. And I, uh, in a marketing, a friend of mine said to me, "Well, you're telling all your ideas to the market by publishing all this." And I was like, "Well, I was like, I'm happy for it to be out there." uh you know happy to share that information we're not sharing any proprietary code you know happy for that information and if that's all we've got to sell and that's all the ideas we've got because actually it's not you know those are ideas but you know how do you implement them and how do you take that you know autonomous car and how do you drive it in a in a road with bumpy roads and and, and where there are no signs because yeah that, that's the key um yeah and, and it's so i mean anybody can have an idea anybody it's making it work um and and going through that learning process and testing and and trialing and and Im improving your intrinsic knowledge and and, and the whole the whole thing is is to have a value proposition that's relevant to your particular target market and if your target market is a small universe but is quite 
large in terms of the each each ent- entity, but is has got complex needs across multiple departments and multiple areas yeah. within that business. All of a sudden, it's a completely different uh, scenario to yeah. um, selling a five dollar a month or a five pound a month uh, uh, a SaaS product for bookkeeping. You no, know, that's why I think market. people distinguish between B two C and B two C, but sorry, B two C and B two B. Uh, and you know, and, and I, I haven't spent twenty five years of my life in this space. I come from financial services, but sort of having gone into that tech space the last decade, there's this neat distinction, and I, I just don't think it necessarily works. As you said, mm-hmm. if you're selling like a or like a subscription SaaS B two B, like ten, you know, five hundred quid a month, the buyer is going to be completely different. The strategic relationship is completely different. You don't need thought leadership on that. You don't need. <laughs> You know, you don't need, and the addressable market in both is huge because yes, the number of clients may be, you know, the addressable market may be hundreds or, you know, 500 to 600 in, in our space and in, in, in selling widgets, it may be you know, tens of thousands of, you know, of clients and so forth. But, you know, the ticket sizes are bigger in this area, potentially. So, you know, they, they, they sort of balance themselves out. Um, and I, I'm still, I'm, I'm just intrigued by how we still, you know, we, we, we still like, you know, data labeling, you know, it's B2C or B2B. When actually one end of B2C, B2B is actually B2C, uh, and the other end is completely different. Well, and, and I'm just thinking about the back end of all the all those little B2C products, because if you think about it, a bank looks after a consumer or a, or a customer. Yeah. It could be a private individual, it could be a company, it could be a large company, it could be a small little business, it could be um, a retired individual uh, with a mortgage, uh, it could be anybody. I mean, if you think about financial institutions and so on, they, they deal with multiple people. So there's multiple people they deal with. So they're dealing with, so you in indirectly still dealing with the end consumer. You've got to enable um, a conduit, if you like, that's what a financial institution is, to enable the end yeah. consumer do what they want to do. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying. So it's, yeah. it really is yeah. a, it is a joint, and 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 you can yeah. probably look at it in different ways, philosophical ways, I suppose. But in in a lot of ways, everybody is being affected, regardless. <laughs> yeah, and, and and things like you know brand equity. There's a lot of things you can learn from B2C and B2B. People are oh, B2B. We don't have, we don't need to do sales and marketing, but you just need to do it. But there are things in B2C. You don't go on Twitter and rant all day, but you, but you know, or Instagram, or you know, all day. But it, 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 it's there, there are lessons, uh, mm. and, and it's this, and I say that, and that's also representative in, in shareholders. Um, we're very careful about the shareholders. It's not about quality; it's about quality of capital rather than quantity of capital. And you know, the shareholders that understand our journey, understand the pain points, and can give us that candid feedback, and have you know that thought leadership where they can. You know, they can advise us and counsel us in the right way. And, and, and some of that's good cop and some of that's bad cop. And you expect your shareholders when you're not performing <laughs> to be bad cop. But also, you, you know, that, you know, you, you know the, the good cop side is really important as well. Um, so mm-hmm. our founders have been very careful about because you know, at the moment we're in this stage where everyone is obsessed with fundraising and putting out a press release. And I see it with some of the media content. How big was the raise? And everyone wants to be <laughs> 100 million raise on their website and and say they're a unicorn and most of these are fake valuations i would say majority of them are fake valuations because they you know many of these investors have all sorts of anti-dilution rights they have all sorts of protections and all sorts of um things uh but it, it, there's an element of founder um i don't know uh ego 
you know, we got to get the best print in the market. And because that founder got a, he's a unicorn. I got to have a unicorn. Um, yeah, it's, it's all, yeah, it's perception versus reality. And I'm, I just, I just, um, you know, as, as, as a, as a, as a passing thought I had that the bragging rights um, of someone who has just exited or, or sold their business or, or, or whatever it is, going to the golf club or the tennis club or going to the cricket grounds, whatever, having a chat to their mates and say, hey, I offloaded my, my business yeah. for, you know, 100 million. But what they're not talking about is they only got sort of a million in cash and the other 99 is an earn out and and it's only a potential they probably realistically walk away with 20 you know not the full 100 but the, yeah, the deal but the bragging rights as you said and it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's bragging exactly. rights it's the same with this crazy press cycle we've got and and, and the unicorn um the uh, and now we're seeing all these down rounds but they were never up rounds to start off with they were they were fake valuations half of these um, <laughs> they were you know it, it's 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 uh, and you know and actually, there are, there's a lot of smart money that will that will be in every round. So you know, you you know, you you, you may you may have invested at the, the high round, but you were in at like zero valuation, and you're, uh, and then you re up and you up big on the on 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 the down round because you believe in the business. Um, but I, I think I think sort of getting through that noise, I think, is really really important. Um, and, and I think with with your background, I think you you've you've learned to to try and work through the noise. Uh, I mean, we all still human, but I mean, we we try and you you build mechanisms and tools and things. And we've come to the end of the hour, Rupak. I mean, I, I, I'd yeah. love to have you on a on a on another episode if you if you're open to it. It's been fascinating speaking to you. But what I'd like to do, if if it's okay with you, yeah. um, just ask: uh, are, Do you have any sort of final thoughts? Um, I know uh, you know we sort of cut it short because I think we can probably carry on for another hour or two. Um, I just just any final thoughts, any sort of takeaways, uh, you know, as as a, a as something for the audience to, to to think through. Yeah, I think I'll you know let me take it back to M and A, which is you know you know a lot of your other uh, uh, you know guests are interested in, and a lot of your other speakers have been involved in, and it really goes back to I think long term. Uh, don't think don't don't just think about you know uh, about about the deal, just about, about the mechanics of the deal. Think about the culture. Think about the the equity story behind it, and think think about what you're trying to achieve. Um, whether it's you know, uh, and I think those are the important things. And how you're going to incentivize that behavior? Hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's people. Yeah, absolutely, brilliantly, brilliantly well said. And th thank you very much for your time. Um, <clears throat> please stay on the line. I'm just going to say goodbye to our guests and uh, uh, to our audience, and then I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be back with you now. Um, so. Thank you very much, everyone, uh, uh, the audience, and anyone who's joined. Uh, thank you for the comments uh, during the during the show. Um, thank you very much to the uh, uh, to, uh, to, for, to join, and thank you very much to uh, Rupak for, for for sharing such wonderful insights. It's a completely different show today. Uh, it's it's done by somebody I believe that's got an, an incredible amount of experience and knowledge from a different point of view. And I think it's interesting when, when you start looking at and dissecting the way the world works, there are so many different dynamics to think through and the changes in the market. And yet there are certain fundamentals that stay in place, things like data, data analytics, and also the, the things like customer relationships, uh, uh, strategic partnerships, 
uh, making sure culture and culture fits are, are in place and so on. When we look at mergers and, mergers and acquisitions, especially the post-merger or post-acquisition integration work, all these factors need to be taken into account. The changes in, in, the, in the environment. And as Rebecca was saying, many of these deals have taken time to put together. Things could have changed in the meantime. And as an in integration, you want to think about the, the circumstances in which you are uh, being thrown into in terms of an integration. Many times the, the ground still shifts underneath. Uh, and you still have to do the work um, on, on, on top with the integration work and with the, let's call it the, the initial strategic reason for that acquisition. Thank you very much, Rupak, for, 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 your, for joining us today. Thank you for your time. We really, really do appreciate it. Uh, uh, to our audience, thank you very much for joining us. Please join us on our next episode of 100 Days and Beyond, where I believe we speak to those people that make things work in the economy in, in the world around us and, and really are the people behind the scenes that uh, are what I call the unsung heroes of the business, of, of the business journey of making those engines take over those systems run. Um, and even when it comes to IT and, and, and technology, those are the key things that are making businesses uh, survive and, and allowing them to thrive in constantly changing environment. Thank you very much. Uh, look forward to seeing you at the next episode and all the best. Hi everybody, this is Dudley again and if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free no obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.